1: just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. O, O,
0: O, O'Reilly Auto Parts Welcome back to Cutting the Distance. Today's guest has been able to combine his two passions of bow hunting and mechanical engineering into designing and producing some of the best broadheads available today. Bill Vander has been bow hunting for 40 years. He grew up hunting whitetails in Wisconsin before moving to Colorado 24 years ago. He still hunts whitetails, but his focus is now primarily on Western big game with backcountry elk hunting being his absolute favorite. He's been a mechanical engineer for 30 years with an emphasis on mechanical design and materials science. He's developed products for other companies for many years, including high-tech aerospace and medical devices before starting Iron Outfitters and focusing completely on broadheads and aero components uh, just recently. He's also an adjunct instructor of mechanical engineering at University of Colorado, where he's currently sponsoring and directing projects related to the science of bowhunting. So welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. I know you just returned from a bear hunt uh, up in Canada. It looked like a great time with some great results. Go ahead and uh, give us a little uh, uh, snapshot into that hunt. Yeah, I've been going up to
2: Saskatchewan in the spring for, oh, I think it's my fourth trip up there in the last five or six years and just seeing some uh, giant bears. And uh, I got a good one last year, but this year it was just a tank of a bear, Um, 473 pound. And man, my heart was beating hard when I saw him uh, coming through the woods. But yeah, a great bear is huge.
0: Yeah. The, the pictures um, were impressive. And a lot of times on bears, it seems like pictures don't do him justice. So I can only imagine how big that, that guy was, but yeah, for upper fours, you know, if we're getting into that almost 500 range, that is a giant. So congrats on that. Um, no, appreciate having you on. We're going to talk a lot about what I consider, you know, the killing end of the stick, um, for a lot of us archery hunters. And so I'm, I'm really excited, but, uh, like every episode, we're going to jump in um, to listener questions or um, some questions that I was able to scrounge up that people had uh, knowing that I was going to have you on a guest today. So like every episode, if you have questions for me or my guests, please submit them to us at ctd at com or send us a message on social and we'll do our best to get them included. So uh, I've got five or six questions here. Once again, I went to to the is it September yet? um, Facebook page, uh, group, you know, a bunch of diehard archery elk hunters. And so I, I've got a list of questions I'm going to uh, throw at you here, Bill. Sounds uh, good. So I don't know if there's a science to it, but we're going to call this first question. Can you explain kind of the science of a good blood trail? Um, this question comes to us from Derek Klein, uh, from, is it September yet?
2: Yeah, I'd say there's kind of probably three factors there. There's, you know, shot placement. Um, did you slight, are your blades able to slice all the way through? And then, you know, what is, what's the shape and size of the holes really? And yep. so shot placement is going to be number one. If you get the heart lung area and you got a low exit hole, um, you know, probably going to be a great blood trail. Um, if you're hitting a, a high back lung shot, um, you know, just below the spine, high and back, those can, those can be not so good, you know? Yep. Um, You've got, you know, the blood's gotta flow down the sides of the animal. Also, you know, you cut the top along but that kind of shrinks down. Not a lot of not a lot of bleeding coming from that. Um, yep. you shoot a a gut shot, maybe. Um that, you know, <clears throat> often the guts can kind of plug the hole and the the stuff coming out might not be bright red, it might be kind of more brownish or or something. So that can be tough too. So you yep. know, shot plays is probably number one. But if you just get into the broadheads then, um you know, the bigger and the more open the hole um, is gonna generally give a better blood trail. Um, so just a two blade slice can sometimes close up and um, give you a really poor blood trail, even if the slicing was kind of good through the middle. Um, they it, it can be good, but that's kind of a potential issue with just a straight two blade. Um, a three blade can give you more of a hole then because you know you don't it's not a single slice that can close up. You've got more yeah. of a maybe triangular shape inside. Um, and I would put a, a two blade with bleeders in that same category. You get it cross-cut there. Inside corners don't can't really stay tension, so they pull back and there's a bit of a hole there. Um in a, a single bevel with the rotation, and I prefer a single bevel with bleeders. With that rotation, that can give more of almost a square hole because of that rotation the way it cuts through the hide. So that hole opens up holes nicely. Um, but the other factor, and I would also say, you know, kind of bigger the better. Um, you know, our wide broadhead series gives a, a wider cut than our standard, and in general is going to give more, you know, more blood getting out of the animal, more more tissue is sliced as you go through. Um, but one other factor that a lot of people don't think about is um, that sharpness and edge retention is really important as well. I believe I've done some testing where you just push the broad different broadheads through, say like a liver or a lung, you know, uh, of an animal af- after you get it, and you can see that with um, iron wool broadheads that are very sharp with good edge retention, you get that complete cut of the size of the head as it goes through. it, slicing everything. It's not really pushing tissue aside. Whereas um, a lot of heads, they're with cheaper blades, those edges are dull by the time they get through the hide and for sure rib. And so they push a lot of tissue aside after that. Don't slice it. So there's a lot less bleeding involved.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and and you know, I just relate the sharpness to, you know, when you cut yourself with a brand new razor, you know, it seems like it takes forever to stop bleeding. And so I've always felt sharpness, but then, like you said, keeping that thing sharp you know, we've all ran our knife through hide. We've all ran our knives, you know, along a bone and it doesn't take very long. So that, that, that the initial sharpness, but then the ability to hold that through as it gets through the animal or out the other side, um, in my opinion, is one of those like very important um, aspects to have that exit hole bleeding. And have you found, or I mean, it's very tough to do, but a lot of times um, we get more blood out of that exit side. Um, Do you, this is something I've always talked about. Your exit hole on a broadhead always seems to be bigger, and and it's be. I'm gonna let you you clear up anything I say that that may be a mistake here. But when you on on your entry side, let's say you have a rib cage that's backing the hide, it it almost guarantees that since there's no stretch to that hide, you're gonna get a hole that's the exact size of your broadhead, unless you come in at an angle, you know. But you're basically gonna get a a mirror of of your broadhead that goes in. But on the opposite side. Um that, that hide will stretch a little bit depending on the sharpness and the angle and whatnot. And and as as you imagine that that hide stretching over the broadhead before it finally starts to slice, you typically will get that bigger um exit side. And, and you know, growing up or everything, you always, you know, the, the exit holes always bigger. Um, they bleed more out of that. Have you found that to be true? Or, or, or are they very similar?
2: I think that's probably true in, in general, that the exit holes seem to be a little bigger than the entrance. Um with single bevels, I'd say that it seems to not be the case so much because that rotation on entrance and the way it it's twisting and cutting, um, I see kind of more similar. It's pretty open hole on both sides gotcha. with those with the with a single bevel with bleeders.
0: Yep, and. Uh, we'll get into it here in a little bit. Um, One of the reasons I like actually a, a narrower head is to mi- to ensure that I get those two holes if I do everything right on my side, which isn't necessarily, it doesn't relate back to the lethality of the broad head. You know, the animal's probably still going to die. It's my ability to get more evidence on the ground, you know, so I can I can track the thing to its final location and not necessarily lose it you know, around here, we've got a bunch of needles or old growth they may run into. And the more blood we can get on the ground, um, the better. And then one other thing I was going to touch, you'd mentioned like a high lung shot, um, you know, and, and the result of bloods we've, we've hit a lot of animals, high lung. And I will say once again, they die maybe faster than other ones because it does fill up their lungs with blood very quickly and suffer. you know, does the, does the killing through that mechanism, but yeah, very, very little blood. Now it is a great shot. If, you know to 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 very quick and ethical but doesn't yield very good blood so it's that balance of uh you know hitting them there versus getting a blood trail so i'll diverge on that topic we're going to get into to penetration and some of the other things i personally look for on on big um western big game but um no thanks for answering uh derek klein's question there on blood trail sharpness two three or four blades i think we covered it all there um now, I there was one thing I'm going to add to this. Do you find any difference in blood blood uh, trails single to double bevel? Does it does that affect aside from what you've already mentioned that entry hole, or, or would you say that you know regardless of the angle of the blade and all of that, they they yield pretty similar uh, blood trails, everything else being equal. I would say with a,
2: a two blade head, um, if you have a two blade without bleeder. And you compare a double bevel to a single bevel, I would give single bevel a little advantage there because there's there's kind of an s cut as it rotates in, so it's um it's not really a straight slit like you get with a straight two blade without bleeders um and then with the once you add the bleeders on a single bevel and get that rotation there it does i mean if you look at the holes through the hide on both sides, they are more open with that rotation um I would say that I've seen good blood trails with both really are double bevel with the bleeder and then our single bevel with the bleeder. There's uh, a lot of cutting going on and the holes are opening up both sides. Um, I think they both do really well. I might give a little advantage though, to the single bevel with bleeder just because of the way it opens up those holes, especially the entrance hole.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So thanks for that. We're going to jump into the next question here. Um, can you explain the warranty of Iron Will broadheads um, and kind of what that covers and and what what led you to that warranty?
2: Yeah, so you know the reason for that initially was that um, you know I spent many years trying to design and develop a broadhead that would would cut through bone and stay sharp, not get damaged. You know, get you through that shoulder bone on an elk. Really, that's a failure that I had, um, and what really got me started in this and after many years of different steels and heat treat processes, um, developed a steel and then in the ferrule material as well that was high strength to where I could pound through the the heaviest of bones and have no damage to the broadhead. So you know, because of that and the cost of our heads, um, we had a lifetime you know guarantee. You bend or break it, we replace it. Um, we, we had enough abuse initially with people shooting them into you know uh, concrete blocks or into. Uh, heavy wood over and over and you know bending them getting them out that we kind of change the warranty a bit to say um any shot you know at or through an animal we um it's warrantied we'll replace it if it gets damaged shooting at or through an animal even if it hits a rock on the other side of the animal but you know in a hunting situation but um we don't want people shooting them i mean some people would shoot groups into targets all summer long until all the blades were damaged and then, you know, want to replace with three packs. So yep. we just kind of limited it. It doesn't cover target shooting or, you know, intentionally shooting it, you know, rocks or concrete or steel, but anything in a hunting situation we do cover yeah. without warranty.
0: So it's basically, uh, not to reword, but it's some common sense applied to hunting scenarios and making sure you're not smashing broadheads together and, and shooting stuff that they weren't intended to, to shoot through. Um, but no, it sounds like a, a great warranty there and um you know at least protect protect the product for what it was intended to do right we want we want you to be able to so they're not single
2: use heads and that's a new concept for a lot of people um you know we've we've had people shoot um and i I probably have as well shoot the same broadhead through several animals maybe 10 animals and keep using that broadhead um you know you typically you know might need to touch up the edges to to um for sharpness after uh, after a couple but um you can keep using them and that's the, the intention there is that when people know that once you buy them you can use these for many years just take some care with the you know target shooting and things to to not
0: shoot them into something like uh, a steel plate or anything like that yeah yeah and that's uh you know you talk about after you know being able to reuse those um same thing here and one thing i really loved about them uh you know when i used to use replaceable bladed you know more mass produced, replaceable bladed broadheads. That was one thing, like shooting into the target, I could feel, you know, throughout a summer, like these things are getting dull when you switched over. Where it's, you know, the iron wheel, I can just keep shooting and it, the thing never, it's, you know, whatever you do to the edge, whatever you've got done with the sharpness there, it's like a foam target really doesn't mess with that. And so I love, like, being able to get an arrow dialed in with a specific broadhead, knowing that however it's set up is, is a great combo and it's flying well. Um, I don't have to mess with it. I don't have to worry about sharpening it, you know, because I've shot it a hundred times into foam. Um,
2: yeah. We generally say, um, if you're going to shoot five times, you know, I think I've measured up to 10, but we kind of say, if you want to shoot every broadhead arrow, you know, in your quiver and make sure that it, it's flying well, you know, just shoot once or twice with each arrow at you know 50 yards or whatever makes you comfortable that that arrow is going to fly well. Um, but five times or less in like a, a foam target, like Reinhardt matrix, um, we, I can't measure any difference to that edge sharpness um and that's yep. because our, our hardness is sixty rockwell c um, so that's a very hard strong edge um, and then we do a multi stage grinding and honing get it very sharp and it retains that edge uh edge really well um, and that's why you can generally shoot through an animal and you know, one pass through of you know hide ribs um exiting into you know just say dirt. You can typically clean it up, see if it's still kind of shaving hair and put it back in your quiver, keep using it. And if it does um, get dull to the point where it's not shaving hair, you pretty quickly, you know, touch it up and keep using it, too.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. So the next question comes from Chase. Hopefully I don't mess up the last name. Eagly. Um, Do your vented heads whistle or make noise? Yeah, in general, vented heads
2: have a little bit of like a shh. Like a shush to them, I guess. Yep. Um, in flight, our solid heads. We just, I did sound testing years ago, and we just actually repeated it this past year with the with a study we're doing at the University of Colorado on um, aerovane designs for improved flight with fixed blade broadheads. And <clears throat> sound recording was part of that. We looked at the the sound um, from the shot to you know passing through, uh, which would basically be when the animals hit. And then looked at the frequency content as well. And you know what we what I would say is that our saw blade heads are very quiet. Similar, we saw similar to Field Point type sound amplitude on those, so they're excellent. And our vented blades um, are a bit louder. Our, our original V series with the small vents are um, probably our loudest head, and then our wide series with the larger vents, um, that vent is a bit quieter. It's kind of like blowing through a whistle versus a tube a bit there. But we saw in both cases, though, and that's, this is why I don't think it's as big of a deal as some people do, is that you, know, you get the sound of the bow going off, and then the arrows, it, it, and really that bow noise is still, there's still vibration noise coming from that bow when the arrow is 5 to 10 yards downrange already. Um, and then it gets really quiet until the arrow gets pretty close to that animal. Or, to the, or the target, and then it flares up. So, um, and, and if we looked at the segment that was, say, 15 to 10 yards from the animal, it was very hard to pick up a difference between different veins, different broadheads, um, anything there. So I think, I think it's a bit, um, I don't think it's as big of a concern as some people have. I think that sound from veins or broadhead um, blades or vents doesn't really flare up until it's so close to the animal that it's probably not as big a factor as people think.
0: Yeah. And you may know better than me. I'd have to go research it or Google it. Um, I can't remember the speed of sound versus the speed of a typical arrow. Like, it, Do you know which one's traveling faster at that point?
2: Um, speed of sound, I think is like 1200 feet per second in your arrows, you know?
0: Yeah. 300. So, I mean, that yeah, animal is your, your arrow is never going to outrun the bow. I, I didn't know the numbers, but I knew this idea that that, there's no, regardless of that arrow whistling, that animal is going to hear your bow before an arrow ever matters. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, in my mind, just comparing the speeds, it's like, all right, that the sound of my bow going off and with any reasonable archery distance that animal's been made aware of my bow before he's ever going to recognize the arrow um, making a whistle.
2: Yeah. I mean, my, my current thinking on this, and I try not to make you know gut decisions. I try to make analyze, do data-driven decisions on things. But I kind of feel like, um, you know, because a lot of people say, you know, from a video, you can see that the animal didn't move at the shot of the bow. He moved from the, um, you know, sound of the arrow later. But really that arrow is, you know, a quarter of the way there, maybe when he hears it, when he hears the bow go off. And and that bow noise continues, you know, for another five or 10 yards of that arrow travel. Yep, Um, And now he's looking that way and you know deer and animals in general have excellent vision for movement so he looks over that way maybe he sees movement of the hunter or whatever or maybe even sees the arrow in flight um you know and then i think with that movement with that sound they're deciding am i gonna bolt or 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 not and they start moving and you know and there's a little bit of time just to register from the sound to when an animal can react so my feeling is, um, yeah, maybe he moved when the arrow was, maybe started moving when the arrow was halfway there, but it's still that initial sound of the bow, him looking over, maybe maybe something he saw with his vision, that's making him react that way. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my feeling. Not so much the sound of the vein or the, the broadhead. broadhead, but you know that's, that's not the general thinking in the industry. I'm just trying to apply science and
0: what I've kind of learned so far. Yeah, for sure that's all we can do right that's where i love being able to balance the science versus what we see out there is real world results and um kind of blending those two so uh next question comes from chris pasto um what's your best practice for sharpening uh iron will broadheads or any broadheads for that matter
2: yeah um i would say first off when you get when you get our broadheads don't don't sharpen them they're very sharp already you it' be difficult to achieve you know the edge sharpness we have. We can zoom into two hundred x and it's still you know dead sharp to uh, one ten thousandth of an inch. Um, and so our sharpness starts way sharper than than many. but in general, I would say that when you get broadheads, um, it's good to check sharpness. You'd be surprised at how many aren't sharp out of the box, especially like a one piece solid construction, you know two or three blade often. a lot of times those just have a milled edge milled bevels to them um so just a note first off when you get heads check to see if they're sharp make sure they're sharp or sharpen them when you get them ours you shouldn't need to do that and then it kind of depends on how much that edge is worn away um generally with with ours it's kind of like a high-end knife the hardness the sharpness is very good to start with and you can typically go through you know hide meat even a rib and have that um, edge be pretty good. So I would first just clean it up, check and see if it's still sharp, shaving hair, or you can see if it kind of cuts paper. Um, if it's good, just leave it. If, if the edges still look good, you don't see any flats or rolled edge or anything like that, but it's not quite shaving hair, cutting paper. Then I just, um, and there's videos on our YouTube channel that show this, but I just start with like an extra fine stone and by hand kind of hold, hold the bevel, um, to kind of match the bevel, just tip it slightly so that I'm contacting the edge, and just you know a few strokes back and forth, um, over and over, and then lightening pressure. And really, it's about a minute, minute and a half of doing that on an edge, and I'm typically able to shave hair again. If it's um, if it's if it's been dulled, I guess more than that, then that, that's when I typically, I guess the foolproof kind of way to do it, I think, is to remove the blade. Clamp it up, clamp it into a um, knife sharpener um, or a broadhead jig. But um, you know, mark put a marker on the beveled edge. And then I like the knife sharpeners where you can set the angle and have flat stones. So you can adjust the angle until just one light, light kind of scrape against that stone is removing removing that marker that you put on all the way to the edge so you know you're kind of matching the bevel cleaning up to the edge Yep. and then you can um you maybe just start with a with a fine and then extra fine or if it's a bit more beat up you might go medium fine extra fine but you're you're taking strokes on one side and then the other um back and forth and kind of regrinding that edge all the way to the tip as you can go to finer stones you can get you know a finer sharper edge um and you know, we can get into more details on this, but as you're, as you're doing it initially, you want to clean up that edge to where you can feel a burr all along that edge coming out to the other side. Um, that, that, then, you know, you clean up that full edge, you, you, um, and you're doing it back then on the, on the other side to bring it back. And then as you go to the finer stones, you're kind of working a smaller, smaller burr. And then at the end, it's, it's, you know, you've just taken it completely off and it's dead sharp.
0: Yeah. I like to use, uh, you know, i've had a few broadheads get to that point a lot of times i can just pick it up you know flip my thumb across it it's still really sharp good enough to to shoot another animal with but yeah when i get to that point i don't remember the kind but it's a work sharp that basically you know rotate your blade 180 you can set the exact angle you want so i just kind of look at the side make sure that you know yeah i'm contacting the tip but i'm almost so kind of maintaining that that angle so i'm getting a real smooth and then just you know run it down the the blade, it holds it at the perfect, you know, 22, 22 and a half, whatever it may be for a double bevel or, 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 you know, whatever that angle may be. And then, um, yeah, you can touch them up really good. I do notice that like, you know, the, 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 since you do get it to a a hardness of 60, it, it sometimes can be a little bit. Uh, more difficult than I would say, like a cheaper steel to get that you have to work out a little bit more. But um, I I found that 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 work sharp lets me get those things dialed right back in without removing too much material and kind of maintaining that angle, uh, really well.
2: Yeah, it's a it's A2 tool steel, so it's it's a steel used in metal stamping dies to cut other metals, and it kind of has a unique ability to have great impact toughness and retain retain an edge um, and sharpness even when cutting through something like like metal, um, it's, I'd say it's a, it's a pretty workable steel since it's a tool steel. It doesn't have, um, it's not like some super steels that have such hard carbide particles in it that, um, that it's really difficult or you need special, you know, stones or equipment to sharpen. Um, yeah. I'd say it's, it's um, definitely doable with, with standard sharpening stones, but yeah. Um, yeah, it would take a little bit more work than say a, a soft, you know, 420
0: yeah yes it's i know it's not near as difficult as like the s30vs s90vs and stuff we used to try to sharpen i'm like man i don't i don't i can't remember how to run a knife sharpener anymore because you'd sit and struggle with those and then you know eventually figured out how to get those sharp again but yeah it's it's definitely easier than that but maybe a little more work than than softer steels. so yes We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of sea foam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on sea foam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer, pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store
1: or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. to the crickets so head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth
0: the next question comes from aj doobie um how much helical for a single bevel would you recommend
2: yeah kind of like two to three degrees um and this is part of the university study too, we were looking at with a high speed camera as the arrow comes out of the bow and how quickly does it spin up? And then, you know, what's the maximum spin it gets down range. And <clears throat> so, I mean, I don't like zero to one degree. I mean, zero, definitely. You're not getting any rotation. And, and the reason you want rotation in in an arrow is it kind of um, averages out any asymmetries. You know, if your, your insert or broadhead head is, uh, is pointing a little bit off to one side. Um, and then as you just shoot the arrow without rotation, it's just going to drive the arrow off to that direction. Whereas if you have rotation, it might open up your groups a little bit, but it's going to keep it much closer to, um, you know, on, on the bullseye. Um, <clears throat> so you want rotation and I think two to three degrees is a pretty good amount. I think on a vein to relatively quickly spin that arrow up. So you get the accuracy advantages. Um, but I don't really see a need to get a very high rotation. Um, I don't, I think at impact, um, you know, super high rotation, it seems like it'd probably be a negative thing, but uh, what I've tested from, you know, I've tested like two and a half to three degree helical with our um, current single bubbles. And that seems to do a really good job. We've got high speed video on our YouTube channel, actually of passing through a deer. And you can see that, the the arrow is rotating at impact and it just keeps rotating right through that animal. Um doesn't doesn't really doesn't miss a beat there with a yep. the single bubble head. So um yeah, I like the two to three degree range um for shooting really any fixed plate broadhead, but definitely seems to work well with single bubbles too.
0: Gotcha. And I'm gonna piggyback on AJ's question. Some of the stuff I don't claim to be an expert on. I've shot helical. You know, right-handed twist, you know, double bevel broadhead. So I haven't had to deal with a lot of this, but you know, single bevels are sold left or right twist, right? And then you've got the ability to helical left or right, but then you've also got the idea that a bow naturally wants to spin an arrow a certain direction. So we take those three things that could all work together, could work, apart from each other, or you, know, you could have two working in one direction, one in the other, what's your opinion on that? Should we go to, cause it's something I've never thought of. It's nothing I've ever went through. You know, when, when I was growing up bow hunting, it was always about, you don't want to spin the arrow so that it wants to loosen your broadhead, you know, or, or the ferrule from the insert. And so you always, you know, everything spun to the right, you know, you wanted your arrow spin to the right kind of kept your broadhead locked in. What's your take your opinion. Is there any research that supports those things should all match? Um, How do we figure it out? Um, I know it's a it's a lot all in one question, but if you can kind of elaborate on that whole idea,
2: yeah, I think the I think the important thing or the most important thing if you're going to shoot single bevel is that your your veins and your bevel match. You know, you want that arrow rotation as it hits the animal to to continue in that direction. So, and I think you can do I'd say do two to three degree um offset or helical and if you're doing right offset or helical then do a right uh, single bevel if you're doing left offset or helical just do a left single bevel because you want that you want that rotational momentum that, that's providing some of the torque to go through the animal which which is kind of needed with single bevel um, you know a single bevel all that pressure on that bevel causes the rotation as you go through the animal but you don't want it to like stop that rotation and have to change direction and go back that way. They yeah. lose energy and penetration there. So that's the most important part of this whole thing. Um, the other question is really the kind of the clocking, they call it all the bow, or if you shoot a bear shaft out of your bow, which way is that arrow going to rotate? And <clears throat> this isn't really done by design. I mean, ideally the arrow would just come straight out of a bow. You know, the bow manufacturers aren't doing something in particular to make it rotate le- left to right. There's just kind of an imbalanced force on it that might go left or right. And um, you know, generally that's due to the string twist and the, the serving and how that knock just kind of releases from it. Um, I first heard about this maybe 12 years ago or so. And I when I first tested on my bow at that time, I was getting like a quarter inch rotation left over 12 feet. Well, I knew from high speed video that my arrow was getting like a full rotation right in like uh, 10 inches or something from the vanes when they're at two and a half to three degrees. So, and you know, from engineering, some of the torques equals I alpha. Um, it's, you know, that rotational, rotational, um, an, you know, angular acceleration, I guess. So to me, like that little bit of torque left um, and all this torque right from the vane, uh, don't worry about it. That was kind of my initial thoughts on it. And I've still kind of tell people in general, it, it's not that it's not a big of a factor. I mean, if you want to really dig into the, the details and the weeds, um, I mean, I do see with high speed video that if the bow tends to want to make it rotate a little bit left, there's a little bit more of a hesitation there before the right rotation starts. So I'm not going to say that it doesn't matter at all, um, but I, I'm not... I'm not so sure that it, I don't think it probably matters a whole lot in a, in accuracy, um, at least not for the average guy. And I'm not even sure for the pros. You know, I've talked to pros that started doing it, but um, they said they aren't really seeing a difference in accuracy. So yeah. I, I'm a bit on the fence on that whole thing,
0: but it's it's one of those details that there's a lot of other things
2: to worry about. Yeah. Like,
0: bigger factors than that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks for diving into that one for me. So the next question comes from Ryan Randall. Are there any plans for a traditional three or four blade head um, in Iron Will's future? Yeah. Um, good
2: question. You know, our two blade with bleeders is basically a four blade yep. um, with, with an advantage. I think sitting that putting that bleeder back away from the tip um, is an improvement for splitting, splitting bone, for instance. If you're, and it's really why I like a two blade with bleeders over a three blade as well. If you think about hitting a scapula with a two blade head, it just has to make one split through it. Um, and that takes quite a bit less force than like a three blade where you're splitting in three different directions at once. It's a lot more force. And we've got some um, force testing data on our website that shows this, but just pushing down through um hide muscle and scapula with our two blade with bleeders, um, versus a three blade. I think our force was, I think the force was like five times as much with that three blade, trying to make that split out three ways. And I hear about this all the time, people shooting a three blade head into scapula on an elk and not penetrating through where ours penetrates very easily through. So um, will I ever make a three blade? You know, I've I might. I'm considered it. You know, there's a lot of people that are just stuck on shooting three blade heads yep. and want me to make a better one. And so I might, but I actually think a two blade with bleeders is a is a better option for still getting a nice entrance exit hole, um, cutting a similar number of t- similar amount of tissue. If you look at the toe cut, but yet penetrates bone and
0: um, and hide and everything else much better. Yep. No, I I'm in agreement there. You know the the. The only advantage I ever saw to a three blade was the idea that that hole may not, um, you know, it, it it may stay more open, but I think we still accomplish that. Like you said, the tension from the center of that hole on a four blade does the same thing and kind of keeps that hole open. But then, you know, people have talked about, well, you know, just basically two, two blades crossing, they can still close, but I agree. You kind of get that, that middle open. So, um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for taking that one on. And now the last question, um, and uh, you know the, the question we had got from a few guys is why are they so expensive? And I'd like to rearrange this question and ask you why are iron wheels worth what, what, what you charge for them? And you know, if you can go through the manufacturing process, QA, QC materials, finishing, um, hardening, all of that, and, and kind of give us a look into why these broadheads you know cost what they cost. Yeah, good, good question. You know, when I, I first had a broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade
2: in 2004, um, and it was pretty, pretty devastating for me at the time. And, you know, I was a mechanical engineer, had developed products for other companies for, for many years at a high level. And then I was, took a look at this broadhead, you know, really critically and decided quickly that this thing's junk. It's prone to failure. Um, and I really just decided, well, I first, you know, researched and test a lot of other heads out there. But then at the end, decided to really just start from scratch. And not think about low-cost manufacturing, but think about how can I get the highest possible performance out of this broadhead to for sure get through an elk shoulder bone, get through the vitals, make that a successful hunt instead of, you know, a heartbreak. And, you know, I'd also had a background when I I first graduated from engineering school, went to work for 3M Company. Um, At the time with development engineers, they'd have you spend like 20% of your time on a technology development project. And coming out of school, um, I kind of had an emphasis in kind of mechanical design, machine design, but then also advanced um, materials engineering and and steels in particular. So the technology development program they gave me was um, tooling development, tooling technology development for the corporation. So I was digging heavily into steels, tool steels, heat treats, Coatings, you know, other things to try and um, improve tools that we're doing, you know, cutting materials, um, cutting metals, you know, um, really kind of all the different tooling things that are used in a big manufacturing corporation. So, you know, I dug deep into the steels, worked with different steel suppliers and things like that. So, I had that background as well. So, you know, I just knew there was that. You know, most of the blades out there were using like a 420 stainless steel, which is not really even a, a good blade steel. It's, it's kind of a nice compromise of being very cheap and doing, doing okay. But um, anyway, I went through five different steels before I settled on A2 tool steel. Um, I used S7 as well, which is a great impact steel. And really, uh, they're both used in metal stamping dies and punches. S7 is generally used to punch or form metal. A2 is often used if you're going to cut metal. And so even though I liked S7 and used it for a couple of years in development, I say A2 was kind of a better because I could get it harder, sharper, retain the edge better. Um, anyway, and, uh, you know, I process it like you would a high-end knife blade. We start with, um, you know, steel plate, um, blank that out. We do um, CNC machining, multi-stage grinding, honing. Um, we do a heat treat process that includes a cryogenic treatment and um, triple tempering to just get the best possible. We, we can geek out on why we do that, but you do this cryogenic treatment, you you make sure all the, you know, it's basically making sure the microstructure is um, perfectly, you know, changed. It goes from austenite to martensite and it's a very hard dense structure and it makes sure it's all uniform. Um, and then the, the tempering adds yeah, the toughness. Um, anyway, we spent a year just working on the heat treat once we chose the steel. And so all these steps in that process, um, you know, add cost versus typical blades are they're done on a reel-to-reel. There's a reel of metal coming in one side, and you can do that when blades are, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 35, 40,000 thick. You can just have a roll of steel coming into a stamping machine to where it, it's feeding through on a strip. It's stamped, and a lot of these machines, they, they grind it right. They sharpen right there, too. They stamp, run through a one-side grinder, um, you know, it comes off the other side of the machine and these parts cost um these blades cost dimes to make versus dollars um to make so anyway that's kind of why ours is more expensive and that's you know kind of explain the blades or ferrules we use a grade 5 titanium for our lighter heads and that's really the best strength to weight ratio of of any metal so um I think that's the best metal to use on a ferrule on say a hundred grain head. We use it on a hundred, 125 grain heads when you really want the best strength to weight ratio. And then as we go to our heavier weights, we use a hardened steel, which is, you know, you can, all steels aren't created equal. Most steel, you know, all steel, say ferrules or heads out there are generally three or two stainless, um, which is not hardened. You can harden, you can use martensitic steel, harden it, and get strength that's, um, you know, maybe three two to three times the strength of of those austenitic, you know, 300 series steel. So, and we actually harden them and machine them in the hardened state. So it requires that we machine them slower. It takes longer to machine. The material costs more. So that's why those cost more as well. But we can get very precise. There's no, you know, distortion or discoloration from a later heat treat, and it's really... It's really kind of best way to make uh, uh, the parts that you can. And I'm all about performance. I'm a development engineer. And I want to use the best process to make the best product and, you know, kind of let the costs fall where they do. And that's really why why broad has uh, cost quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Um, And... you know i'm i'm the same way you know sometimes with our calls you know it's like let's just design the best call we can and roll up the cost of goods and figure out where that thing needs to be to be profitable you know and that's we've let that lead a lot of our our projects um but yeah for me you know and and not to over dramatize it but you know we spend not trying to justify it. you just you basically gave us the reason on the price but for me as a user of your product Uh, You know, you spend all year for the most part planning, thinking, you know, setting up for these hunts, you know, your your one or two archery elk hunts because you only, you know, maybe three max to squeeze these in, you know, you drive potentially all over the country, you drive across your state or you drive, you know, you're driving into your unit and you've bought new this or that. Like when it comes down to it, like, do I want to risk the chance that, you know, when I'm at full draw, knowing, you know, the last thing I want to think about is if. You know, is this broadhead going to perform or if I make a slightly less than perfect shot, like, is it, you know, am I still covered? Like, is the broadhead going to be, you know, and, and for me, it's a, it's easy just to like, I, I, peace of mind knowing that I've got the best, the best broadhead that I, I've been able to find, you know, on the tip of my arrow.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, all the, all the effort, all the work, you know, to be a bow hunter, there's, there's a lot of preparation and work that goes into, into it. And when you when that shot happens on that animal that walks out and maybe it's the biggest animal you've seen or, or whatever, but when that animal walks out, what piece of gears matter the most? Well, at that point it's having good arrow flight and then having your broadhead perform, you know, on impact. So, you yep. it's, um, you know, our heads are probably 20 bucks more per head than, than the things you're going to pick up at a um, department store. But it's, um, yeah, to me, it's, is, is worth it at that moment of truth there. To yeah. get that out have the best chance for success
0: yeah well uh that that kind of wraps up the listener questions here i appreciate everybody over is it september yet um sending us questions and so once again you have questions of your own email them to us at ctd at com or send us a social message and we'll do our best to include them uh for me or my guests so now we're going to jump into kind of my discussion i wanted to have with you bill um you know on cutting the distance we're all about tips and tactics and i think it's important to kind of you know and to become successful but i, I believe it's easy to kind of roll broadheads into um you know finding success and uh, you know being able to to you know technical data surrounds them you know the lethality of the broadheads and so um yeah glad glad to have you on here i got a few of my own and i love when things are based on science and data you know we're coming off of a few interviews with biologists like i just love being able to look at the data and and you know figure out does this correlate with what i've seen are there anomalies are there reasons why what i've seen are different than the data and just like let the chips fall where they do and um you know go with that, but you are you know similar to me we've got the engineering side but then we go out and test all of our products um and i want to see those real world results um that support or back up what's found in you know and what i believe what i've been able to find and i think you and what you're doing with uh iron will broadheads kind of you know encapsulates that whole idea um you know design the best broadheads on paper do a bunch of testing and then go out and confirm them on animals so um yeah i you know, going to gonna jump into to our conversation with you here. Um, so can we dive a little deeper into your work that you're doing with the University of Colorado? You know, I think there's a lot of just generalities or ideas that have, you know, come from many, many years of bow shop owners and in, in industry stuff. Um, but you're actually going back and kind of proving that or, you know, coming up with data that supports that. So give us a little bit of what you're doing at university of colorado um you know you've got new veins that you're looking at new arrow setups um, kind of give us the full rundown of of you know lab testing and and new products
2: yeah so to give you a little background there you know i developed products for other companies for many years and i was always seeking out the best um you know engineering tools really whether it was computer modeling um, instrumentation, um, you know, high-speed camera, um, accelerometers, just whatever kind of instrumentation, um, you know, analysis tools. Really, kind of the best engineering tools and applying them to I- improve products. You know, en- engineering is really applying science to you know solve problems or or develop better products. But at the companies I work for, I always, um, you know, really drove highest level engineering Im- improvements. Um, and through years of doing that, I was leading engineering teams, and you know, really kind of mentoring and driving other people to um, you know do the you know apply science, do the analysis, but then also um, do some lab testing to kind of prove that uh, you know a computer model is accurate, and and this what you know the analysis shows will be an improvement actually does make an improvement, and then in the final you know final assembly testing. Um, you know, prove out that you did make make it better. And so, you know, I was involved, you know, in different companies doing that. And then companies I worked for started sponsoring university projects. Um, and then I was um, placed as kind of the company, you know, industry client over those projects. And then about eight years ago, the university asked me to be one of the faculty directors. So I became an adjunct instructor of mechanical engineering and was one of the faculty directors for the senior design um, project from mechanical engineering. And that's a year long project where seniors, mechanical engineering are, are required to do it, but they take um, an industry project and spend a year doing, you know, analysis, um, design analysis, prototyping, testing, you know, iterating, bring it, bring it to manufacturing typically. Um, so I've been, you know, teaching students kind of best practices for um, mechanical engineering and trying try to kind of bridge that gap between okay, You have all the school knowledge and you know, all the tests you've taken, all the information is there now. How do you, um, you know, solve the problem when you have all the information? That's generally what happens in university tests. To where you get in the real world and develop a project, and all the information isn't given to you, you have to figure out what is a science here, what is a physics, how can I apply it, um, how can I um, analyze it, test it. So, you know, I've been teaching students to do that. And then this past year, I finally I uh, got approval from the uh, university to both direct and sponsor projects. So Iron Wall Outfitters is sponsoring a sponsor project on improved arrow vane design for bow hunting, you know, with fixed plate broadheads on the front. So it's been a great project. Um, you know, it was uh, five seniors in mechanical engineering that had no background in, you know, archery or bow hunting, which I kind of like. They come into it with, with no, um, you know, preconceived ideas of what works or doesn't work, they're just using, designing, analyzing, um, collecting data, and really kind of making data-driven, um, you know, decisions or showing the results based on that. Um, so this past year, we tested six of what I consider kind of the top hunting veins in the industry. Um, did a you know CAD model of those at a three degree helical on the arrow with ironwood broadheads on the front. Did a fluid dynamic model, um, so it's really a very sophisticated. One it has you know airflow going over the arrow even as it's rotating through the air. We were able to model that. We're looking at um, we're looking at really accuracy, stability, wind drift, drag, um, and sound from that. So we can we can we can model all that here we can oh in a, I don't know if I said spin up as well, so we can kind of model that how these different veins will um do a better job of that than the other you know we tip we can tip the angle' at, say five degrees to the wind like as if it's coming out of your bow and your bow's a little untuned, and we can see what is the restoring torque that quickly brings that arrow back back on track to get it you know straight at the target and so uh, we, we studied six of the veins in, in the industry, and then studied some different prototype veins. Um, but we took it from the you know analytical computer modeling to then also um, to do the empirical testing, the actual testing with a, a shooting machine, using a high-speed camera to kind of vary, to verify the spin-up and then the stabilizing, um, and then the max and then the max rotation. Uh, we used um, lab radar to look at. The velocity from the bow to the target to verify the drag and the drop that we calculated through the model. Um, we had a very sophisticated sound recording system placed out there that was uh, recording the sound with these omnidirectional microphones, and then we analyzed that through through MATLAB so we could look at uh, the frequency content, and we looked at. You know the frequency kind of peak range for humans, which I think was uh two to four kilohertz, and then also animals, which I believe was four to eight kilohertz, so we said, OK, is this arrow sound you know arrow broadhead vein combination sound loud to a person and also does it sound loud to an animal? is it more likely to make an animal react or not so um, we took all that data we just kind of finished up the project we're going plan to put out some kind of white papers to summarize that, but that's um that's kind of a, just the overview of the project. And really the reason I wanted to sponsor that is I feel like with, with the broadhead development, I have a broadhead now that is, you know, penetrating really well through hide bone. It's getting in that pass through. And some people, a lot of people, um, I wouldn't say a lot, but some people, their problem with shooting fixed plate heads is that they, they struggle to get good arrow flight with fixed plate heads. So, I wanted to dig more into the science there and kind of be able to show people, hey, you can definitely get great long-range flight with fixed-plate heads. You just need to uh, do a few things here, you know. rotation in your arrow, tuned bow, um, the right veins on the back, and, and you're good.
0: Gotcha, yeah, I, I, I like it, and uh, see, I'm excited to see what comes out on that white paper and if it changes anything that we, uh, we think is, is right as of, as of right now. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today
1: at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth
0: my next question for you is uh, what's your opinion on foc did we did the pendulum swing too far does it matter um you know we we've went to this you know all your weight in the first two inches, like, just give me your take on that and what you've found, or or what your your opinion is on if there's a compromise where where we don't have to chase these huge FOC numbers.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any science that would show that extreme FOC would would be a significant increase in penetration. Um, if you, I mean the 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 science and the math, the physics and the math, there is that. Um, Mass is that momentum is going to equal force times time. Change of momentum will equal force times time. Momentum is a, is a vector quantity, so it has a direction. And momentum is mass times velocity. So really the way to, to maximize your penetration is to maximize that mass times velocity in a straight line. So having good arrow flight so that your arrow is going straight as it impacts the animal, And then, you know, have that increased mass and or velocity can give you that total increased mass times, total increased momentum at impact. It's going to translate into how much force can that um, really aero system apply as it cuts through and for how long. So it's that product of force times time. So there's no FOC in that in the math or the physics there. There's no center of mass in that calculation. Um I think it only comes into effect if it's somehow changing how how well your arrow is flying or what it's doing at at impact. So um I think the advantages with FOC they improve stability. As you move your center of mass a bit forward, you're gonna improve your stability. But um I personally don't go to any extremes. I think say 12 to 15, 16%, it is great. I've seen excellent penetration. My arrow setups are usually in that 12 to 15% range. And I can tell you through all my testing with the right broadhead on the front, you have excellent penetration. Um, So I don't see a need for um, this extreme FOC. The the physics doesn't really um, justify that. I I think that Dr. Ed Ashby's testing, I've talked to him about this, he saw, now going from a 19 to, I think it was 22% FOC, saw 30% improvement in penetration. I really think that's because he's shooting a longbow at close range, and there's a lot of flexing in that arrow. And it probably improved his arrow flight, um, or how straight that arrow was on impact, and that was probably the majority of the factor for penetration. And I think it's, it's unfortunate I think a lot of people have tried to apply that to modern compound bows. And the negative that they do is to try and get extreme FOC. They're often underspined. Yeah. Putting that a lot of mass out in front, you don't have the aero stiffness to support it. You get massive flexing back and forth. And I see this on YouTube videos of people that are extreme FOC um, you know, advocates. You can see in their aero flight, it's that thing's flexing back and forth like crazy. And, and in my aero setups, I may be getting like a half inch of vertical flex of the aero, and then it's, it's almost going perfectly straight, you know, 10 feet later. Yeah. I don't I don't want to have that massive flexing back and forth all the way to the target. That's going to reduce penetration because yeah. your momentum is it's not in a straight line anymore.
0: Yeah. At that point. No, I'm, I'm in that same camp and, you know, and then you're like, all right, well, mass is included. So do I just go to a heavy arrow? But then you're once again, if you're chasing heavy arrow and FOC, you end up with an underspined arrow or you end up with you know, you, yeah, you end up with a heavy weight, but now you're, you've just given up velocity, which all calculates back in the, you know, it's really just a trade-off and, and that's where you know, you look at it. And then you also factor in what you saw from, you know, maybe some of the female bow hunters you've hunted with that got perfect pass-throughs at 52, you know, pounds in a, a 420 grain arrow or whatever it is. And you're like, well, what am I doing as a, as a guy shooting a, you know, a, a 72 pound bow and full length arrows, 560 grain. It's like, does it, Does it all matter, or do we just need to be able to shoot our bows better, um, you know, and hit the animal right where we want? And uh, you know, I build my arrows somewhat backwards, and I fall into that same twelve to fifteen percent FOC like you do, just kind of naturally. I've you know got a fairly long draw. I shoot full length thirty-two inch arrows. Um, I and then I just kind of keep stuff and weight in the front until I get my bow to to what it says on paper is going to shoot about two hundred eighty to two hundred eighty-five feet per second and just confirm that i'm spined right and then i move on you know i'm not chasing a weight i'm I'm chasing more of a speed what does that weight and that tip weight got to do and then make sure my spine still and you know is correct and i'm not going to be you know under over spined and, and just kind of leave it there like I, I build backwards to a speed that i i like to shoot um and, and don't chase foc or a crazy weighted arrow you know just just by my size i end up with a 550 to 560 grain arrow but you know, it, it's it's just because of the 32 inch draw length and heavy arrows.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there. As you increase the mass, your trajectory drops off. Um, and so people ask me, you know, what what weight should I go with to maximize penetration? Well, I think you do continue to see improvements with penetration with, with mass, um, especially and you know, the technical reason for this I think is because a is an animal tissue and everything probably asks bit like viscoelastic material where it's like, as you increase that shear rate, it takes more force. So a light, fast, um, arrow is going to take more force to go through at that higher speed. And it's going to slow down easier because it's light versus, um, versus a heavier arrow. And so, but it's not, it's not a, a huge of a factor. So I think I kind of calculated in my setup, I thought, Hundred grains, say going from four fifty to five fifty, might be a maybe a ten percent improvement in penetration. Maybe not quite that much, really. But yeah. um, I but then there's a, a drop off in trajectory as well, and that's why I'm typically end up around five hundred grains. Um, but it's why I'm not going six hundred plus. Um, because I just get way too much drop off in the trajectory. And having good arrow flight and hitting where you're aiming are are really number one. Yeah. Um, for sure. And as far as where to put the weight, yeah, up front's better than putting it you don't want to really want to put it at the back um and up front's better than having just a heavy arrow with a light light head up front. You know, I wouldn't go with a heavy arrow and then I have only have 100 grains or one 116 up front like some people will do with just a aluminum insert and a 100 grain head. and Then your is down at 10% or below. I think um I think say you know, the recommendations out there in the industry are maybe 10 to 12% for target setups and like 12 to 14 for um, hunting arrow setups. I think that's what like Easton has said before. I don't like going all the way down to 10 or below. You just, you add the possibility for instability yep. to fix flight head. So that's really the reason for having some mass up front and having uh, a decent um, FOC, but there's no need to go extreme, in my opinion. It's more likely to hurt arrow flight in trajectory.
0: Yeah. Um, this kind of segue or kind of plays off of what we were just talking about. Um, do you have much research on, you know, the cutting diameter in relation to penetration? And one thing I've always did, which surprises some people is I just shoot a hundred grain solid head. I want the smallest cutting diameter as possible. Now I want that broadhead to be sharp and and do all the other things, but I've always in my head just added weight to my insert Um, or whatnot because i wanted the ultimate penetration as i mentioned earlier i've always been in that camp that i want a hole on both sides i also if i do encounter bone i've always thought that a one inch cutting diameter is easier to push through that bone than an inch and you know an eighth or an inch and a quarter do you have any data on cutting diameter in relation to, to penetration and if my thought process is right or if it's incorrect
2: well, I totally agree with you that getting that exit hole is important and you know, cutting all the way through getting the exit hole. And um I like to shoot our our standard width heads on on elk. They have like an inch and sixteenth main blade, three quarter inch bleeder. It's one point eight inches total cut, but it's relatively compact and flies well at long range. And that's that's generally my elk head. Um, and you know, I'm zipping right through that. It takes such low force to cut through with our heads that often they're Going twenty yards and, and looking around or sometimes not even moving, you know it's zipping through and they're dying quickly if with the right shot placement, so I don't really see a need to go with bigger heads and and for years, I kind of fought it, and then we had enough people that really just wanted a wider head for white tails bears, things where the shots are closer um, and long range flight isn't so important and just to get a bigger hole uh, when I first Started making those and doing all the lab testing. I expected to see a higher, quite a bit higher force to penetrate with the wider blades, and I was a bit surprised that I don't measure much difference. Um, and And it's really kind of helped reinforce what I'd learned prior: is that sharpness and edge retention are huge factors in the force it takes to penetrate, especially in hide and you know muscle and tissue. But um, it seems to be in scap like scapula as well. Now. Um, I might say if you know bigger, heavier bone, I do. I'd, you're probably gonna have less force to cut through with a, a head that's not quite so wide. But if I just measure the force to go through, see it through, say hide, muscle, and like thin part of the scapula, man, I have a hard time measuring a difference between our standard head and our wide, which is an inch and three eighths wide, main blade three quarter inch blader for two and an eighth inch total cut. Um, So, I've I've kind of changed my thinking a little bit and I don't see any problem with using that head on, um, you know, deer and elk. I use it a lot, but I also started using it on elk when I have a setup where it might be over water or I know the shot's going to be relatively close. It, it penetrates, you know, I put one through a bull last year, exited the opposite side shoulder bone, um, and then buried into a log eight inches on the other side of the elk. So even though it's wide, it went through, you know, it wasn't the thin part, it wasn't the knuckle, it was kind of in between part of the shoulder bone, but it didn't really slow down. I think once the tip starts cutting away, um, and maybe on, on bone split, it's kind of split that far already, and maybe on the hide, once you start cutting, it doesn't take that much to keep cutting it a little wider. Um, but I do think in general in the industry, if you look at broadheads beyond ours, you know, the more cutting, the wider cutting you do it takes more force, and it's probably going to give you less penetration in general gotcha
0: yeah that's okay perfect that's kind of what i thought but it's, it's that it's that idea that it's gonna in my head it's gonna work if i hit it in the right spot and don't go through heavy bone the the one inch is still or the one in 16th still going to do its job but for the the you know and i've went through you know right through the middle of the scapula before and and broke through but it's that instance like right, i maybe have to go through there or i I miss just a little bit and go through there. Um, I feel like it just gives me a little more margin of error. But you know, as you're saying, maybe maybe not as much as we thought due to the you know the construction of the the tip and and how everything's uh, working on those iron wheels.
2: Yeah, one thing I'd point out too is that um, our newest head now is a is a wide single bevel head that we've had a lot of people asking us for. I've been testing that over the last year and um, just a few weeks ago, I was in uh, Texas hunting hogs with it and one hog. Um, you know, kind of a uh, older boar that I shot a little further forward than I intended to It was a forty yard shot or some leaves covering his head, and I ended up shooting too far forward. I went right through the knuckle on that hog, and that was probably two and a half inches of solid bone, and it was a loud crack, and I thought, oh no, I had something really hard. this would be a real test for that wider um, wide single bubble that's trying to rotate you know through the bone too yeah. But, um, it it made it through the bone and got, you know, all the way through the animal. Um, it, the arrow didn't completely pass through, but the broadhead made an exit on their side. And and that bone just cut clean in two where you could just kind of pull it apart like a puzzle, put it back together. It was a slice all the way through. And so that was with our wide um, head. So again, I feel like it, it's gonna, you know, you need the right steel, the right hardness, strength, and everything to be able to cut through that bone. but um, it was good to see that even with the wide, we went through probably the thickest bone you're going to see on a on an animal um, in North America. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I I had a question here coming up to that would have been a great segue, you know, single bevel versus double bevel. Um, you know, we kind of exhausted that on the on the listener questions. But um, is are are you seeing the ability? Uh, this is my last question on single. Um, go, once again, bone. Um are you seeing a difference? Does that single bevel just have the ability to kind of torque its way through and rotate its way through bone better than double bevel? Or is that tonneau point on the double bevel able to, to break through bone similar? Or is there an advantage of one to the other?
2: Yeah, good, great question. And, you know, over many years of testing, I've kind of struggled to find a difference for bone splitting ability. I know that that was, um, it's set out there a lot that the single bevels Rotate and pop bone apart. I've talked to Dr. Ashby directly about that um, and how my results were a bit different. And, you know, he was using a very long, like three to one ratio head. He had a very slow longbow setup. And he was seeing where a double bevel could kind of um, just kind of wedge, wedge into that bone and um, take more force to penetrate versus that single bevel. As it started rotating, it was kind of popping bone. And reducing the force for him to penetrate, it was an improvement. Um, and, I, and I think we've—I've talked to this in, with him a number of times now. And I feel like with with my setup being a modern compound bow, I had so much more energy that when the tip of in our tanto tip shape, when that enters the bone, starts piercing that bone, it's it's popping it apart, it's cutting it apart very quickly, um, you know, and, and doing a great job penetrating. And that single bevel as it's cutting in and, and popping it apart. You know it's hard for me to see a difference in in that, at least with my setup and my my levels of energy. Um, it might be more of a factor it with a low you know lower energy uh, setup, thicker, longer, you know thicker bones, but I'm generally not seeing it. I'm popping through. You know, I do a lot of testing on you know cattle femurs, things like that, and I'm seeing them both are popping through um, with no problem. Gotcha.
0: Um, so we're going to, this will be my last question for you, kind of rolled it up a little bit, uh, you know, for elk when you're, when you're, uh, you know, in close proximity, but you know, we got a lot of white tail hunters out there, uh, you know, so for, for setting up for elk, what would you recommend the best broadhead for white tail hunters, um, you know, to be, you know, out of a tree stand, if that changes angles and and all of that, do you have a recommendation for that? Or is it just typically your wider, wider angles?
2: Yeah. You know, I've shot. I've shot all of our broadheads on quite a few whitetails at, at this point. And I could say that, you know, they, they all do a good job. They all, you know, zip through quickly, cut through bounds, um, open up shot angles and opportunities there. Um, that's really kind of what I tell people that, um, you know, might shoot mechanical or want to know what, how is our head better than a mechanical at a whitetail? It's I'm generally telling them it's, it's opening up shot angles, and you know, if, if you shoot a mechanical, hit them where they're soft, and you're probably fine. But with ours, if you know that animal ducks and turns into it, and you have to go through the shoulder blade, even the thickest part of the, the shoulder bone, uh, it's going to penetrate, and it's it's going to get you through the vitals. Um, or if it's a downward shot through the spine, um, and really, I say that about any of our heads um, that we make, they're all going to be able to make those shots. I'm generally personally using, um, our wides now more on white tails. It's just that the, the shots are, you know, typically 20 to 30 yards. Um, rarely are they over 40 in a white tail woods. And so I know, I know our wides are going to penetrate great. Why not get a little bigger hole? Um, if there's a more marginal shot, let's say you end up hitting, you know, one long liver guts. Um, I've done that a number of times. And with our wide, our wide bevel with that 208 inch total cut between the main blade and the bleeder you know often they're going maybe 60 70 yards and dying even with a single long liver um shot it's just doing enough trauma that they're going down quickly so that's kind of the advantage of why shoot maybe a wide over a smaller one is just more um you know more bleeding quicker potentially quicker kills so that's what I generally recommend on whitetails. Our wide series, and that's what I generally recommend on on bears as well, which are similar, closer yeah. shots and um, and yeah, and bears especially with all that hair, it's important to get an exit hole there. That's talking to the outfitter again in in Canada a few weeks back. A lot of guys are coming up there shooting mechanicals, and if they're if they're a little bit quarter away and hitting the opposite side shoulder, they're not getting pass through. So then they got a high entrance hole, no exit hole. And on a bear, that's, that means no blood, no blood trail. Um, cause it just soaks up that, that blood so much. So, um, yeah, white tails, bears. I rec- I generally recommend our, our wide heads for those shots.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, Bill, tell everybody how they can follow, follow along, you know, you know, follow the company on on social media, check out more. And if there's anything else you'd like to, to throw in that we didn't cover here, um feel free to do that as well.
2: Yeah, our website is um Ironwall Outfitters. Um we're on you know Instagram, Facebook is Ironwall Outfitters also. We're we have a YouTube channel. It's also Ironwall Outfitters. And um, yeah, I'm I'm committed to uh improving, you know, bow hunting, um uh, applying science to make better products we we make um broadheads um you're currently working on um making better arrows we've started you know, through the university study we we came up with uh, we found the best thing from the study was this um, hybrid hunter uh, vein which is the max hunter profile and a new hybrid material that we had a make for us and um worked with east end to Machine flexes at three degree helical, so that all the people ask that ask me, you know, what arrow setup should I use to with your broadheads? Uh, I can just say, hey, the one we saw right now uh, kind of did the best overall in the study, um, and you know, we know this is going to work well to make our our heads fly well. And really, if you you know have a bow tune. so your arrows coming relatively straight off of it, you're properly spined, and then you have enough vein on the back to um, stabilize that fixed plate head on the front. You should have good aero flight. And, uh, yeah, we have great tech support. If people are having any problems with our broadheads heads in flight, we're happy to help you get that set up. But I want to throw that out there too, that we're, we're, I want to help the bow hunters be more successful and we're happy to help you do that.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks for jumping on. Uh, good luck this fall if I don't talk to you before then. And, uh, always appreciate your knowledge and, uh, perspective. You know in your opinions whatever you may throw at this because um, i know you've tested it and confirmed it so i really appreciate having you on um and and take care yeah thanks jason it's good talking to uh, another engineer and uh, i
2: know i might have uh, got a little bit too into the details but hopefully uh, people have some takeaways from it but yeah
0: thanks a lot for having me on Yeah, thank you take care